irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to LA Talk Radio. <laughs> Hello there, and welcome to All Things Therapy. I'm your host, Lisa Tahir. I'm a licensed clinical social worker practicing as an intuitive psychotherapist. You can learn more about my work through my website, which is nolatherapy.com. It's the abbreviation for New Orleans, Los Angeles, therapy.com, where I have offices in both cities. I'm coming to you today from Los Angeles, and I just appreciate you for listening each week and subscribing to this podcast on the various platforms where it's found. I'm going to ask you to continue to rate and review my podcast on iTunes. That would mean so much to me. And I do have links to make that easy for you at nolatherapy.com. Additionally, I'm available for remote sessions by phone, Skype, FaceTime, and Zoom during this COVID-19 shelter-in-place order. So you can reach out to me, Lisa at NOLA Therapy, or again, go to my website. My book is on pre-sale. It launches November 10th. And it has to do with healing our deepest core wounds through astrology, empathy, and self-forgiveness, changing the thoughts that we have, which change our beliefs. And then we begin to live taking different actions. And my guest today is going to share, in fact, more about this. I'm going to transition because I want to take all the time I have to be with Dr. Alan Weiss. He is the founder of Summit Consulting Group, and his clients include, when I tell you this is a small list, Merck, Hewitt-Packard, Mercedes-Benz, the New York Times, the Federal Reserve, Aetna, Chase, Citibank, Entergy in my hometown of New Orleans, Deloitte, HBO, Toyota, and Texaco, just to name a few. He has authored over 60 books, I think 64 as of this moment, that have been translated into 15 languages. He's a New York Times bestselling author and has published over 500 journal articles. He's a keynote speaker around the world, and he is additionally an inductee into the Professional Speaking Hall of Fame and a concurrent recipient of the National Speakers Association Council of Peers Award for Excellence, and he represents the top 1% of professional speakers in the world. Today, we're discussing his most recent book that's published called Fearless Leadership, Overcoming Reticence, Procrastination, and the Voices of Doubt Inside of Your Head. And if you want to follow along online, you can find Dr. Weiss's website is Alan, A-L-A-N, Weiss, W-E-I-S-S dot com, on Facebook at Million Dollar Consulting, and on Instagram at Alan Weiss, Ph.D. So I just want to welcome you, Alan, to the show today. Thank you, Lisa. I could listen to you forever. That was some introduction. Oh, I appreciate that. You're easy to introduce because you're, you've been prolific in your career. Obviously, it brings well, sometimes you great I, I guess sometimes I go for value and not accuracy, but I'll, I'll try to be better. <laughs> I 
heard you say that before. I think that's funny. So in this book, Fearless Leadership, I love that you talk about leadership being learnable and our lives have to do with the creation of meaning. Can you kind of start us into this book and what inspired you to write it? Sure. Uh, I think that uh, my observation is that people have been searching for meaning and you, if, you know, for their lives and those who think about it. And you see cartoons you know, of people climbing a mountain and they find the guru up there. I saw one where a dog climbed a mountain and the guru said to him, uh, it's not the bone, it's the search for the bone, you know, that kind of thing. Yes. Uh, but as I've dealt over these you know, 30 years with executives and those kinds of companies you mentioned, and also with uh, more and more lately entrepreneurs, what I found is that uh, – people suffered from low self-esteem and that low self-esteem was undermining their ability to charge commensurate with their value. In fact, I found that a lot of people felt that calling someone uh, was interrupting them, was an irritation rather than an offer of value, which Mm -hmm. is a very different kind of mindset. And so when I looked at self-esteem, I said, why is there so much low self-esteem among people who either have reached executive ranks or have gone out on their own to run their own business. And the reason is they're afraid. Some of the fear is overt and some is covert. Uh, But that's why I decided, uh, you know, I've written Million Dollar Maverick. I've written books on a wide variety of topics. But I thought I'd write this book and and try to address fear and, and being fearless as a leader. How do we decipher fears that are real versus fabricated? Well, it's an interesting thing. You know, we develop phobias in terms of fabricated fears, uh, and we don't really face reality very well. So uh, let me give you a couple of examples. Yeah. Uh, we, we look at a spider, and it's a strange thing. And, uh, you know, we know that a black widow spider can inflict some damage. And so we tend to become afraid of all spiders because they're not consistent at all with what we consider beauty. And we know there's a couple of dangers, but 98% of spiders are not dangerous. And, and spiders are a very important part of the ecology. The same thing with snakes. We see a snake and it's sort of slimy and it slithers along and that tongue comes out. Uh, and we know that some snakes can kill you and quite fast. But, you know, about 90% of snakes are non-lethal, non-fatal, and they can't hurt you. They just want to live their own lives. But we develop a phobia because of one bad experience or one bad understanding about all things. You know, another example I love to use is that when we're kids, most of us, we look under the bed because we're afraid there's a monster under there. Yes. Now, a lot of times we're afraid to look under the bed. We cover our head with a blanket, but sometimes we build up the nerve. We shine a flashlight and, and there's no monster. And we get older and we say, well, you know, that was kind of silly. But the fact is, we're not sure there could have been a monster in the times we didn't look. <laughs> But the real fact is not that there was a monster, not a monster under the bed, but if there was one, it never bothered us. So we need to look better at empirical reality and we need to stop fearing fear in a manner of speaking. You know, I like that so much, Alan. And when you talk about overcoming fear by confronting it and asking ourselves, why do I feel this way? Why am I scared of this? Can you talk to us about, about that, about how to, how to let go of the fear? Yeah, I mean, let me take an obvious example relative to your introduction. Sure. It is said that people, uh, the greatest fear among people is a fear of public speaking. And I remember a Seinfeld bit once where he was giving a eulogy in a funeral home, and he said, supposedly fear of public speaking is greater than the fear of death, so I should be more afraid than the guy in this coffin, he says. (laughs) uh, But as, as somebody who's spoken, you know, for 30 years, The fact is that if you put yourself, just think of yourself in an audience 
And when you're in an audience listening to a speaker, what you're saying to yourself is, I hope this is good. I'm really looking forward to it. I could use this help. You're not sitting there saying, I hope this person goes down in flames. I'm going to heckle them. I hope they're a disaster. I want to go home and brag that I wasted an hour of my time. And except for the 2% of the world who are, you know, psychopaths, that's how most people feel. So when you walk out on a stage or in front of a business meeting or wherever you are, the people listening to you are just like you listening to others. They're supportive. They're with you. And so the entire feeling that, you know, you should, you should picture them naked and those kind of nonsense. The fact is the audience is with you. And so we've built up a false fear. You know, when we're young, we're told, at least when we were young, and you can't go into the water uh, short of an hour after eating lunch. You'll get cramps, you'll drown, and you'll die. And, you know, we used to sit on the beach, and at 58 minutes, we'd say, not, not yet. We have two more minutes or we'll die, you know. Of course, that was proof false. And our mothers used to tell us, don't run with a stick in your hand. You'll poke your eye out. No, nobody I ever knew poked their eye out running with a stick. <laughs> so, you know, we developed this baggage that we carry around. It's loaded into us. It's sometimes, you know, hardwired into us. And we continue to, uh, unwittingly, we continue to act based on the mythology without testing those boundaries. And it's so true what you're saying, Alan, about public speaking. I chose to begin uh, participating in Toastmasters International about a year ago here in Los Angeles. And I quickly realized the room is your friends. Like you're saying, people are not going there thinking they hope you screw up or say something dumb that really, and to have that mindset, it's how you approach your audience, that they're you're in this together, you're here to share information, hopefully benefit their life, offer something of value, and that's a win-win, that they're supporting you to receive what you have of value to offer. Well, one of the greatest, I agree with you completely, and one of the greatest problems I found when I was writing this book with people is that uh, one of the reasons for this fear is a fear of rejection a fear of being caught in an error. And that's because we put our ego out there on the bow of the ship and the ego is hit with waves and wind and battered and battered. Our ego should be down in the cargo hold and well protected. And so uh, people are very, very fearful of being wrong. And, you know, perfection is the enemy of excellence. Mm. So people have to understand, you know, no one's ever had a perfect plane ride or a perfect meal or a perfect car. There are always deficiencies. There are always problems. We just don't notice them when we live with them. The same thing in terms of what we do. So we shouldn't fear lack of perfection, and we shouldn't fear someone critiquing us. In fact, I tell people, in, as a coach and counselor, uh, never listen to unsolicited feedback. Only listen to feedback from people whom you respect and you ask for it. If you listen to unsolicited feedback, that feedback's for the sender. It's not for you. Actually, that's really important. That was a great reminder for me that we can selectively screen out the feedback we don't want to receive and choose to receive it from respected colleagues and individuals that we want to learn from. I thought that was a great reminder. And it it caused me to kind of go into, you talk about the guy on your shoulder, kind of the our, our voices, our inner self-talk and how important it is to strengthen positive inner self-talk. Can you share that with us? Sure. I mean, there's a guy on our shoulder, metaphorically speaking. And right. it's a guy, I'm not trying to be sexist here. Uh, and the guy whispers in our ear, you're not good enough, you're not good enough, you can't do this, you're an imposter. You know, your father said you'd never amount to anything, your mother said you weren't as good as your sister, and so forth and so on. And what we have to do to stop listening to this guy is to flick him off our shoulder, and he bounces off the wall, and you step on him till he bleeds. Um, yes. And conversely, you can try to convert this guy on your shoulder to somebody who whispers in your ear and says, you can do it, you can do it, you're a hero, everybody's with you. And the difference is how you talk about things. And self-talk, I think, is very, very important. There are some people who debunk 
this uh, the, the latest sort of things about positive psychology over the last decade, but uh, I'm for it. And I think that when you speak to yourself on positive terms, it's manifest in your behavior. It informs your belief system, and it's manifest in your behavior. Uh, I'll give you another example of this. We tend to generalize negatives into narrow positives. And so uh, we, we get rejected by someone. Uh, we're trying to sell something, and we're rejected. And we say, boy, I am a really lousy marketer. Instead of saying, at this point in time, this person on this day decided not to buy something. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, when we have a victory, we make the sale. Instead of saying, I am a great marketer, we say, boy, I got lucky. Now, I'll show you what this is really damaging, and a lot of people listening right now can relate to it. With your kids, or even other people's kids, somebody makes an error playing soccer or baseball or anything else, and you say, God, you're awkward. You're, you know, you're not much of an athlete. That is paralyzing. But if you yeah. say, that was a tough kick, no one could have handled that any, well, any better. That's different. You've isolated it. Uh, similarly, when a kid brings home a high mark on a report card or a test, you don't say, well, it's good but not as good as your brother, or you don't say, well, you got lucky. You say, you're turning into a real scholar. So we have to isolate negatives. We have to expand positives. And that's part of the self-talk that will manifest itself in our behaviors, which will become, therefore, much more positive. Yes, I'm reflecting back to in your book, reading those sections, and it was resonating. Like when when I grew up, my my dad is an immigrant from Pakistan, became a doctor. Lots of pressure to excel and do well. And so some of the statements you write in your book, like, well, you know, your cousin is on the honor roll, and it was like, oh my gosh, like seeing my life flash before me in a <laughs> sense of like I could never do well enough. And now him and I have had the conversations. He thought he was helping me, and I think a lot of parents think they're being helpful by these comparisons versus like you're saying to, you know, be an encouraging coach that can also hold you accountable, but in a way that causes you to want to believe in yourself and excel instead of collapsing into feeling not good enough. That's right. And it's manifest not just with parents and family, but in business. So most people, the overwhelming number of people who leave a company, who voluntarily leave a company, aren't leaving the organization, they're leaving a boss. And in fact, when I coach people, it's very simple when I consult with organizations, I find the patterns of who's, who they're leaving and it's easier to, to remedy that. But they leave a boss because most of these bosses whom they leave, you can never be good enough. It's just what you were saying before. You can never win enough or be good enough. I remember talking to a sales guy who set a company record one year, one of my clients. And I said to him, just after Christmas, I said to him, you got a huge bonus, but you seem absolutely morose. You're unhappy. He says, well, in another week, it's January 1, and I'm a bum again. Mm. And I said, my God, you know, you just can't win enough, can you? It's terrible. You know, Alan, what you're saying, I had made a note where you speak in your book about taking appropriate action based on rational beliefs. And it was a, a real resonance again where employees want to be, they want autonomy, agency, recognition, and freedom to take action versus just more money. It's the intrinsic rewards that I think help people to feel valued. Can you speak to us in business about what you found in that area when you work with companies? Yeah, you have to go back to Fred Hertzberg, who is you know, from the 50s, a, a great you know, psychologist and consultant. But he pointed out the hygiene factor, which is that uh, the presence of money does not motivate, but the absence of money is a demotivator. And the fact today is that if you give an unhappy employee more money, you have a wealthier, unhappy employee. Mm -hmm. And so it's a real trick 
to be able to manage and lead people so that they have agency, they have autonomy, you reward them appropriately with recognition, not necessarily with dollars. This is what people crave. One of my newspaper clients uh, had a great technique where the editors would put up the articles that were printed yesterday in the paper with red marks on them. And the red marks weren't editor critiques, they were congratulations. It was a great lead paragraph or fabulous interview. And this was for everybody to see. And everybody, therefore, wanted to be up on that board and so they would do their best work. So it's this ability, uh, which will be very difficult now, by the way, Lisa, because what we're seeing post-crisis, and we are emerging here, mm-hmm. what we're seeing post-crisis is hybrid organizations, organizations with W-2 employees full-time, 1099 employees part-time, people working at home, people working in the office, people alternating between the two, consultants, contractors, subcontractors. It's a very different kind of workforce in these hybrid companies to lead and to keep motivated. So uh, I think we're going to have to, we're going to see a lot of coaching and a lot of people uh, helping out because this is unprecedented for leaders, this kind of organization. That's so interesting. How did you find yourself? I remember your story where you were fired once as a younger man and talked to your wife. I think it's Maria about starting your own business. How did you find yourself at this level of coaching huge corporations and like what awoken or sparked within you, Alan, to do this? When I was fired, I decided, you know, you either get distraught or you get angry. And I got really angry. And my wife said, okay, and this is Maria, good for you. And my, my wife said, okay. She said, forget about the mortgage, but you'd better get serious, she told me. I said, fair enough. So I looked around, there were 250,000 consultants in the United States, and I said, I'm not going to stand out here. And I believe that in leadership, you have to play on your strengths. Don't correct weaknesses. Don't bother correcting weaknesses. And, you know, most self-help books assume the reader is damaged and try to correct the reader. I don't believe mm-hmm. in that. So my strengths were uh, speaking and writing. Uh, I was a lousy networker. I didn't like small talk, but I could speak and write. So I spoke and I wrote, I spoke and I wrote. And I began to get noticed. And somebody called me from Merck, which uh, was about to become, you know, America's most admired company five years in a row uh, in Fortune magazine. And they said, we've got this project down here. We think it's something that you can handle. Can you come down? And I did. And that began 12 years with Merck, 12 consecutive wow. years, which was a long time for a consultant. Yes. And not only did I make millions of dollars consulting with Merck, but I made millions of dollars just telling people I consulted with Merck because it was like an ironclad referral. Mm-hmm. And I worked 10 years with Hewlett Packard and all these other great firms mentioned. And what happens is that uh, the, the most influence that people have in making decisions is peer-to-peer reference. It's not the internet. It's not advertising, and all the literature for the last 10 years shows this peer-to-peer reference. Uh, John Berger is a friend of mine at the University of Pennsylvania, and he, he wrote Contagion, Invisible Influences, newest book is The Catalyst, and he talks about this very thing. So what happens is one, one peer says to another peer, you need to get Alan Weiss in here, and it's done. That's it. And so you get on those radar screens, and that's one of the greatest kinds of, of leadership you can see when you're considered to be an expert and people can't wait to use you. And you and I do the same thing every day. Somebody asks for a good lawyer, we recommend a lawyer or an accountant or, or a designer or whomever. Nobody's going to, nobody Googles a heart surgeon, right? Right, on, on the internet. yes. Nobody, right? <laughs> nobody, nobody Googles, you know, a lawyer. And they ask who's the best around. I love that. You know, what you're saying too, I'm thinking of the ego resilience and being able to snap back quickly. And that 
has been for me a, a life lesson in the last three and a half years of me writing my first book and the rejections that I got from publishers. At first, it I took it personally, and then I developed ego resilience around, okay, this I'm one step closer to a yes. With every no, I'm closer to a yes. And then the yes finally came with a wonderful publisher. And so I really like the notion you present of, of with really powerful leaders, strong leaders, they have ego resilience and can snap back quickly. And they know their failures or mistakes don't represent their self-worth. Can you speak to us about that some more? Yeah, I'll tell you two things real quick. One is I wrote a book on resilience with a psychologist in Pittsburgh named Richard Citrin, and we wrote on that very topic you're talking about. But what I'm laughing about is my bestseller of all time is Million Dollar Consulting, and it's been yeah. on the shelves for 28 years uninterrupted through five editions. But when the book was first written, when I first wrote it and tried to sell it, it was rejected 15 times. And uh, 15 times before my agent finally got it placed. And he placed it with McGraw-Hill, one of the most elite publishers around. And it's on the shelves for 28 years. So you have to be resilient and you have to keep bouncing back. But what I've uh, learned, and, and I've, I've noted this in several of my books, is that resilience has characteristics. Resilience has, um, has traits. And so you need things like the ability to ignore unsolicited feedback, which I talked about before. Mm -hmm. You need language skills so that you can master any situation through the use of nuance and metaphors and examples. You, if you can master language, you can master any room. Uh, you need to be able to uh, understand uh, the other person's self-interest uh, so you can influence them and it becomes a win-win situation. You need critical thinking skills. So there are seven or eight of these traits that are important if one is going to be resilient. It's not, it's not just a visceral uh, feeling that, okay, I'll be okay again. You, there are actually skills you can build. And just as you said at the top, there are skills you can learn to be an effective leader. There are skills you can learn to be resilient. Actually, I want to go back to that, Alan, because I kind of skipped over one of the earlier points to talk to you about. We're, we we know that when we're confronted with something that overwhelms us, the, the responses are fight, flight, or freeze. And you really highlight this freeze aspect, like the deer in headlights, as you speak about, where the deer dies because it's stunned into inaction, it's paralyzed. Can you talk to us about how this happens in leadership and how we can overcome that? Yeah, the common thing written about you know psychological circles is fight or flight, you know, and it supposedly comes from our, our great ancestors where they either fought the danger in front of them, you know, the the uh, the animal, uh, or, or they or they ran for their lives. And um, I inserted in there that you need something else to to understand the phenomena, and that is fight or flight or fright. And I see in leadership all too often fright, and fright paralyzes you. And sometimes you're better fighting and getting getting hit, uh, and sometimes you're better running to fight another day. But fright is the killer. So you, you bring up the deer in the headlights, and that's quite true. But it, contemporane contemporaneously uh, with the COVID crisis, we've seen a great deal of fright. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, there are brave people fighting it. And there are some people who tried to run from it by, you know, going to an island or getting in a boat or doing things like this. But a lot of people have just been frightened. Uh, and there's a chance we might see more economic deaths than medical deaths if we're not careful. So it's not that it's a simple situation. It's a, it's a frightening situation. But our, our, our reaction uh, to the threat should not be to freeze. And 
if you think about, you know, my father was a paratrooper in the Second World War, yes. and he jumped into, into the jungles of New Guinea with people shooting at him. Uh, nobody's shooting at us today. Uh, when we walk into a buyer's office, when we go to try to influence someone at a meeting, nobody's shooting at us. And so we've got to calm down and, and be much more rational. You know, Alan, reflecting back on a story about your dad that I heard you share, um, and my correct me if I'm getting this mixed up, but on one of his jumps, there, there were a lot of men that died. It was really dangerous. And I think your dad shared, they just, you know, how did he do that? You might have asked him, and he said he just never thought it'd be him to die, like the mindset. Can you share that story? Yeah, you reported it accurately. Uh, most of okay, his unit good. was wiped out. They, they jumped from 500 feet with no reserve shoot wow. uh, into Japanese guns and into the jungle. And I and he never talked about the war. But I asked him once, I said to him, how could you do that? I mean, he took me on the parachute jump at, at Coney Island, which existed <laughs> long ago, and I was scared out of my mind. I said, how could you do that? And he said, you just assume it won't be you. And uh, I think that if you ask yourself, what's the worst thing that can happen? If you make a speech and you fumble it, you make errors. I mean, hell, I fell off a stage once. Uh, <laughs> you recover. You know, yeah. it's not the end of the world. Uh, if you blow something with a client and the client fires you, it's not the end of the world. I've been thrown out of client offices, you know. It's not the end of the world. And so you have to understand, though, that nobody's going to shoot at you. And uh, as a leader in an organization or as an entrepreneur, take prudent risk, but nobody's going to shoot at you. And so stop acting as though there's some great threat out there. The only threat is to your ego. And that's why I advocate tucking your ego away. That is the most replenishable thing on your body. And yet we, we just, it gets bruised too easily because we allow it to be bruised. Yes. Alan, I want to read a section of your book to our listeners that's coming to mind as you just shared that. So here in Fearless Leadership, Alan says, Fearless leadership is about overcoming your fears and insecurities in your life, your relationships, and your career. It is about moving boldly and quickly. It entails the drive for success and the resilience to bounce back. It's about prudent risk in a volatile world. But basically, it's about you. The question I ask every coaching client at the moment is, are you having fun, enjoying life? And the question I ask every coaching client about the future is, who do you want to be? That really struck me. Can you, can you talk to us about that? Yeah. Uh, when I ask people who they want to be, they invariably tell me what they want to be doing. And that's not the question. That's not mm -hmm. the answer to that question. Uh, they have to think about who they want to be. And this goes back to one of your first questions to me here today. And that is, you, we have to uh, create meaning, not search for it. And you can only create meaning uh, if you're thinking about who you want to become, because we are in a, um, a movie. We're not in a snapshot. People assume that the world they see is the world tomorrow, and they're learning now that that's very wrong. They assume that who they are today is who they'll be tomorrow, but this is a movie. And um, my next book is going to be on legacy. And mm. if you think about legacy, uh, every day we write a chapter in a book. We write a page in a book, a chapter in a book. But some people write the same page every day. It's like Groundhog Day. Nothing ever changes. Some people have the page written for them by uh, outside forces. And so we're responsible for writing a new page every day in our book and growing and experiencing. And, and that's the way that we can create meaning. And, and I'll tell you something, Lisa. You know, the, uh, the only way you can coast that I've ever seen is downhill. Uh, you can't coast on a plateau. You'll stop. You can coast going downhill. And you cannot coast uphill. 
And so we have to climb. And we have to climb and climb, climb. That's the journey. And as we climb, we learn and we grow, and then we can create meaning for ourselves. And once we create meaning, we're all set. You know, one more thing. You know, there's this old adage that, you know, you ask one person who's laying bricks what they're doing, and the person says, I'm laying bricks. The next person says, I'm building a cathedral. And the point is supposed to be the second person has a career, not a job. Well, my real response to that is what you're doing is you're bringing people closer to God. That's mm. a calling. And what we need is a calling, and that's meaning in life. I love that. Alan, I'm going to take a quick break, and I'm going to come back and talk to you about that because I just jotted down a thought. For you as my listener, if you enjoy audiobooks as much as I do, Audible is offering you a free month subscription to try them out, and then it's $15.95 a month. Take advantage of the opportunity by going to audibletrial.com forward slash all things therapy. That's all one word audibletrial.com forward slash all things therapy to try out audible for a month. Okay. Allison, Allison, I mean, Alan, I want to interview you on your book about legacy because that's another note I jotted down. I jotted down so many things last night. I, I believe that we leave a, leave a legacy at the end of every conversation when we leave a room and it seems like your work, it's really about creating, like what we do create our meeting versus searching for it, being, have it given to us from someone outside of ourselves. So I really love where you're going with this book and this legacy. Oh, I appreciate that. And I, I'm looking into agents and publishers right now for the book. I think it's going to be, you know, very well received. And what I found is that when people try to sell a business, the people who are not very good at selling their business try to create value in the business the day before they want to sell it, right? So they try to create the legacy of the business, mm. the valuation of the business, much too late. It has to begin now or yesterday. And the same thing with your life. Your legacy isn't left when you pass away. You create legacy every day, just as you said. And so the point is to understand that and to be cognizant of it and to contribute to it consciously. And that's the way that you create meaning and that's the way that you grow. So legacy has to be, I think, redefined, and we have to use the right metrics. You know, I have a phrase I use, T-I-A-A-B-B, which means there is always a bigger boat. And no matter how big a boat you try to get, you know, there's this competition around the world among these, these gazillionaires, somebody's always going to build a bigger boat. So the point is not to have the biggest boat. That's the wrong metric. The point is to have a boat that makes you happy. Mm. And once you do that, once you're comfortable in your own skin and you're happy – then you can really contribute. But as long as you're trying to compete, uh, it's not going to work. You know, you, your work is really expanding my mind as a private practitioner versus companies and corporations. How does a company develop legacy? Like, your, you know, your vision is just, wow, it's ex expanded my mind, like, in a new way. So I'm curious about that. Legacy for a business versus an individual. Well, companies have to have a vision. Uh, and it's not the stereotypical vision you hear about, you know, vision, uh, mission, values, all stuff, and traditional strategy. And I, I invented a new strategic approach called sentient strategy, which yes. uh, you could set strategy in one day uh, because we can't afford to spend a lot of time on it these days. It's in, inappropriate. But the point is to have a vision. And so, for example, I mentioned Merck before, which, you know, I, I've always regarded as a wonderful organization. Their vision when I worked with them was very simple. We want to bring the greatest in scientific research against the greatest areas of human health suffering. Mm. At one point, they had a drug that failed, 
for their intent. They invested, you know, tens of millions of dollars, but the drug failed. However, coincidentally, it cured another disease, uh, African river blindness, which was the biggest cause of death in Africa at the time. And Merck donated it to African countries. Wow. And river blindness was, river blindness was eliminated. So th this is a company with a vision and uh, a calling, if you will. And so, yes, companies can achieve that. But the companies that just want to make money, that just want to leverage money, you know, George Merck said, do good and good will follow. If you look at a company like Toys R Us, which was a great company, had a great idea. It was purchased by people who just wanted to make money. They loaded it with debt. They leveraged it, and it went out of business. You know, uh, Sears, which was once a yes. great company, should have become Amazon. It should have morphed into Amazon. Instead, Sears is a wreck, and Amazon rose independently. So, you know, Steve Jobs at Apple had a calling. Uh, Bill Gates at Microsoft. So you can see the difference in these companies. Well, tell me this, Alan, what you're speaking to right now, does it have to do with where you write about the best-led companies versus the worst-led companies and those attributes of the different leadership styles? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the best leaders are leaders who can work very well in ambiguity, which, of course, mm -hmm. today is more important than ever. But they're leaders who can say to people, follow me. And that it's not that they have the answer, but they have the light. Follow me. Uh, in the American Civil War, the greatest number of casualties among officers was among brigadier generals. And the reason was a brigadier general led a brigade, a thousand or so people. And in that day and age, you marched across a meadow into enemy guns. It was sort of 17th century maneuvers versus 20th century weapons. And it was horrible. And so these thousand or so men, to march across that meadow, they looked to their leader, and the brigadier general got on a horse. And he said, follow me. And he got on the horse, and he, he went across the meadow. Now, he was an easy target up on the horse, and that's why they had the highest rate of casualties. If the general was killed, other people said, for the general, and on they went. Today, generals are in the rear, nobody leading the charge. And so leaders can't say, go ahead, I'll get there in a few minutes. You have to say, follow me. And leaders have to be honest, and they have to be transparent, and they have to be consistent. Most surveys of leadership show that people most admire consistency. You know, just just don't keep changing every every two mm -hmm. days. So give me someone I know what to expect from. Uh, and leaders know how to do those things you mentioned earlier. They know how to provide for recognition and autonomy and, and so forth. And one other thing that's more important than anything is innovation. Uh, because if you're going to climb, if you don't want to coast, you're going to climb, you have to innovate. You know, I heard you share that story on an, an interview about the Brigadier Generals, and I actually had to rewind it to listen twice because the first time I was like, what, who, you know, getting on a horse, obviously you're going to be shot down and it didn't make sense at first. And then I got the point that they so motivated and inspired the people to follow and keep moving, knowing that they're going to die. Like, wow. And, and if you look at the converse, if you look at what happened at Wells Fargo, and you look at what happened at Volkswagen, and you look at what yeah. happened at Enron, those leaders set the wrong example, and people followed them in the wrong direction. And, and that's how important good leadership is, and it's how important it is to respect the fact uh, that people have goals, and they have uh, values, uh, and they have the integrity uh, to be out in front with the right message. Yes. You know, and that, that causes me to think about another 
time I heard you speaking, talking about how your intent is to improve people's lives and their businesses. And to be honest, to confront on the false beliefs and myths so that people can grow into who they want to be. I'm curious, what is next for you, Ellen? Writing all these books, another one coming out, what's what's on your frontier? Well, uh, you know, I've just launched uh, a special coaching program for a short duration just to help uh, entrepreneurs who are stuck in this current economic crisis. And so uh, I've engaged heavily in that for 90 days. And and anyone, any one day I'm talking to people in New Zealand and in Norway and in Japan and you name it. So I, I'm very engaged in that. I'm the president of the ballet here in Providence. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm oriented toward helping it survive because the arts are just suffering so badly right now. So I'm trying mm -hmm. to lead them into a new age with a different kind of program and a different approach to the arts. Uh, I'm very engaged with, um, with our family, with uh, our grandchildren, our, our two kids. Uh, yes. And, um, you know, trying to show the right road for them as well. I kid people that, you know, once you have kids, it never gets better. <laughs> I think my dad has said that too, Alan, to tell you the truth. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know yeah. when a kid calls and, and your wife answers the phone and they said, let me speak to dad, it's never good news. Yes. You know, it's never good news. <laughs> so, uh, and I'm trying to be more involved in the community here. And I'm also trying to, you know, I'm engaged in hobbies. I feel that hobbies give you great energy. Uh, and then they help you, uh, you know, retain your, your, uh, your joy, your joie de vivre. Uh, you know, there's a great, I think it was Bertrand Russell said that um, uh, men don't grow old because they stop playing games. They stop playing, ga uh, uh, men don't, I'm sorry, men don't stop playing games because they grow old. They grow old because they stop playing games. Mm, and so I believe yeah. we all have to stay active. I believe retirement is an ancient artifact. You know, as you were just speaking, Alan, this question came to me thinking that your books have also been used in academia, at universities, including Temple University, UC Berkeley, the Wharton School of Business, and thinking of the COVID-19 crisis. And I, I work with a lot of high school and college students in my therapy practice. I'm thinking how resilience is really important for them to navigate not having the traditional graduation or potentially starting their freshman year of college as as other as we could outside of this crisis do you have any thoughts around resiliency for this that upcoming generation i think they're going to be much more resilient having okay. come through this uh, i think that it's it's going to be a good thing in the long run it's like an annealing process you know yeah uh, when i was in high school we had the cuban missile crisis mm. and the cuban missile crisis was the worst thing i've ever been through i mean it's worse than what we're facing today with COVID 19. it, it was worse than vietnam i mean we thought we were on the brink of nuclear annihilation uh people were crying in the hallways and uh so having been through that uh having been through the 60s in general with the cities burning and assassinations of martin luther king and john kennedy bobby kennedy and all this kind of stuff uh you get you get uh you get a, a renewed sense of the value of life and you also realize that you can be resilient in the face of almost anything and so i think the kids today will survive nicely i think that kids are always resilient they survive divorce they survive all kinds of trauma and uh, i think this will make them stronger in the long run i can see that too because the students i'm working with seem to really be rolling with the changes and doing what they can. I know in New Orleans, some of my high school students, uh, clients went to their high schools in their cars to you know, be next to each other and hang out last week. 
on what would have been their last day of classes. And I thought that was really cool that they thought to do that. And it happened at multiple high schools, I'm sure elsewhere. So just the innovation. That's right. And, and uh, we have to give kids more credit than we give them. And I think we have to stop assuming that, uh, uh, that they're not up to it, that, that, that they're somehow, you know, the, the problem is so we, we label generations and we treat generations with these broad labels and stick them in a drawer. And it's, it's simply not fair and it's untrue and it's, it's not helpful. Uh, if you take a look, for example, at, at, a, at the youngest generation today in school, or just graduated from school, doesn't matter, and compare them to baby boomers, you'll find that some of them share, boomers and that younger generation, common values. You'll find within boomers, not all boomers share the same values, and within the younger generation, they don't, share the, they don't also share the same values. So we've got to treat people as individuals, and we have to stop treating them as, as uh, people in a drawer who are labeled as something. It's terrible. You know, and Alan, as a last point, going back to, to business and the way you help people in leadership uh, work with their fears to live free of fear. I'm thinking like if you were coming to consult with me and my company, I would want you to think well of me. It could be hard for me to share my fears or vulnerabilities. How do you help leaders to really get honest with themselves and uh, with you? That's a terrific question. It's all based on trust. You have to establish a trusting relationship. People will not allow themselves to be vulnerable. And the only way you can change is by agreeing to be vulnerable. They won't become vulnerable unless they trust you. And so you have to establish a trusting relationship. I mean, it's important for a therapist, as you know. Uh, it's important for a coach. It's important for a consultant. Uh, and a, a trusting race relationship, among other things, is based on mutual respect, careful listening, and a helping attitude. And if you can do those things and establish trust, you can do remarkably well helping people. That makes so much sense. So you go in and off the bat initiate those, that kind of relationship. You have to, and you have to be able to identify the traits that constitute trust, and you have to be willing to move as fast or as slow as the other person is ready. And, uh, but if you, if you pay that much attention and you take the time, uh, you'll have a tremendously successful experience. I like that so much. So I know your website is alanweiss.com and your book is available. All of your books are available on Amazon at so many places. Is there something else you'd like to leave our listeners, how they can reach out about even your coaching program right now for entrepreneurs? Well, I, I would say that uh, it would be very important to go to my site because I have free audio, free video, free text, all free. Uh, my podcast every week is called The Uncomfortable Truth, and that's free. You can sign up for all this stuff on my website. Uh, and if you have any questions and you'd like to hear more about personal coaching or whatever, uh, drop me a line. It's alan at summitconsulting.com. I'll be happy to talk to you. Wonderful. Oh, and lastly, I love your cartoon strip with your two dogs. The, the Adventures of the Koufax and Buddy Beagle, yeah. So cute. I did some reading and digging. I was like, oh my gosh, that's so brilliant. Like what a creative outlet for you to take your two doggies that passed away and immortalize them in the cartoon. I keep their spirit alive. That's exactly right. Absolutely. Thank you for taking your time today, Alan. I really appreciate you. This was great, Lisa. Thank you so much and be well. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. That concludes my show today with Dr. Alan Weiss of Summit Consulting Group. I hope everyone is doing well today. I am wishing you well and love, and I'll be back with you next week. Thank you. Bye-bye. 
listening to All Things Therapy with Lisa Tahir, only on L.A. Talk Radio. Has the winter season taken a toll on your tile, upholstery, carpet? Call Cyclone Cleaners, 570-726-6200. For all your carpet, upholstery, and ceramic tile cleaning needs, it's Cyclone Cleaners, also offering odor treatment and soil and stain guard. Choose the only cleaning company that supplies the water to clean your home and disposes of it when they are finished. Call Cyclone Cleaners to schedule your cleaning today, 570-726-6200.